This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. What is it like to be under suspicion? And how can perceived guilt or innocence change our intimate relationships, our sense of identity and life? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this morning's show looks at some of the extraordinary and frightening experiences in life and examines the nature of personal responsibility, of judgment and of proof. This is a show about love and obsession, courage and vulnerability, paranoia and pain. British writer James Lansdon talks to me about his hugely engrossing new book, Give Me Everything You Have, which tells the disturbing and shocking story of his personal experience of being stalked and harassed by a former student. began with sort of hate mail, proceeded to accusations of plagiarism, of sexual misconduct, and culminated in death threats against me and my family. The original subtitle for this book was in fact not on being stalked. I wanted to call it Notes on a Crisis because it seemed to me that what I had to offer anyone else was not just my weird little story, although I think that has some kind of interest, but just the record of going through a crisis, the kind of crisis that, you know, stretches you to the absolute limit of what you can take, which is how this was for me. But I felt it would have resonance for anyone who'd been through any kind of crisis, an accident, an illness, job thing, whatever, that had really driven them to the limit. And considering just how cold, dark and damp it is outside, well, we're going to warm it up a bit and escape to one of the most fascinating and haunting cities in the world, to lovely Istanbul, and review Aaron Pamuk's classic literary homage, Istanbul Memories of a City, with writer and poet Michael O'Loughlin. But first... In 2007, British novelist, poet and screenwriter James Lansdon found himself being obsessively stalked by a former student. A few years earlier, James had taught a fiction workshop for graduate students in New York, in which the standout writer was an Iranian-American woman in her 30s, who Lansdon called Nazreen. The class ended, time passed, and then out of the blue, Nazreen got back in touch with her professor, asking his help in finding a literary agent. What happened next can only be described as living hell and one intense emotional roller coaster. James Lansdon found himself subject to verbal terrorism, an intense online smear campaign which targeted his character, his reputation, and brought him right to the edge. But the story doesn't end there. No, it takes a very different and unexpected an intriguing turn. Lanson took the brave and enlightened decision to turn this horrific personal experience into inspiration and write a captivating memoir. And I have to say, it's hard to put down. Give Me Everything You Have is a cautionary tale for the 21st century and clearly illustrates the frightening power of the internet and email to give slanders and abuse instant worldwide circulation. The book is as revealing about Lansdon as it is about the murky nature of modern technology. It's thought-provoking, mature, wonderfully honest and hugely reflective. While it scared the living hell out of me, I really enjoyed it. And it certainly made me think about what situations I invite, consciously or not, into my life. Myself and James chatted earlier in the week and I asked him just how difficult it was to write this book. 
there were a lot of difficulties that I encountered on the way. Mainly the difficulties were emotional, and this is such a peculiar book in so many ways. It's such a private book. It's a book about very very bizarre experience. It's a book that raised ethical and legal questions that I had to resolve. So, I mean, I did need to deal with things that I haven't dealt with in other books. So from that point of view, it, was, it had its own kind of special difficulties. But the actual writing of it came quite quickly. And can we talk about your experience, James? Because for those who haven't read Give Me Everything You Have, it's an extraordinary book that tells a very dark tale. Can you tell me about it? Well, it's the story of finding myself the target of a campaign of malicious email stalking and online defamation by a, a former student of mine that began with, with sort of hate mail, uh, proceeded to accusations of plagiarism, of sexual misconduct, and culminated in death threats against me and my family. That must have been incredibly stressful for you. How did that affect you in terms of your overall career, in terms of your creativity? Because that cuts at the heart of your being. Well, it took me over completely. I mean, this was something that went on for such a long time. I mean, at the beginning, at the very beginning, I thought, well, this is just a, a strange episode that's going to end and she'll be embarrassed and that'll be that. But it didn't. It just went on and on and it got worse and worse. And after... You know, after a year or so, I stopped thinking, well, this is going to end. And I had tried to bring it to an end by going to the police, by going to the FBI, by getting as many people involved as I could. And I just wasn't able to end it. And um, so after a while, it just began to take over my my, my head. I mean, I, it was very difficult to think about anything else and increasingly difficult to write about anything else. In fact, most of what I tried to write during the first couple of years you know, were things that were about different subjects, but they all had a way of just gravitating back into this subject. So eventually I, I just accepted that, that this is what I needed to write about. And James, you wrote a book called, is it The Horned Man? Yes. And that also touches on issues of obsession, of reputation, of paranoia and very intense relationships. So there are similarities in terms of both books, but one is obviously fiction and one is your own lived experience of the world. That must have been very creepy that you've written a book where there, there's kind of people are under suspicion and all kind of weird stuff happening. And well, it was, then it, it, it kind it, of plays out in your own life. Yes, I mean, that was very strange. Um, that was a novel that I had written years before this experience happened. And it had these eerie similarities. And, and it was something that, in fact, Nazreen, which is the name that I gave to my stalker, she was very conscious of it. She was somebody who had read all my books rather closely and referred to them and referred to that one in particular. So she was quite conscious of, of kind of playing into not just my kind of present time psyche, but into everything I'd written, everything I'd thought about. All these were, were she, she was rather obsessed with. But I think beyond that, I mean, the, there's just something a little uncanny about the similarity of the situations. I mean, that, that novel was about, um, yeah, about a, a guy who teaches and writes and, and becomes um, the center of a kind of conspiracy. Well, this is something I explore in the book, that the, the degree to which anybody is not complicit, but has some sort of relationship to the things that happen to them, even the bad things, has not necessarily a responsibility for them or a complicity with them, but some sort of resonance with them. I, I, I think things happen to you for perhaps for a reason. At any rate, I was interested in exploring any relation I could between my own psyche and, and what was coming at me from the outside. 
And your own experience of being stalked and then writing about being stalked and burning it into a book. Did you feel that in any way that you were somewhat remotely responsible in terms of you had engaged with this woman? She was a student of yours. You had motivated her, complimented her. Well, I wanted very much to explore my role in it. And uh, and much of the book is, is about that. It's about uh, looking at the experience itself, looking, trying to understand her, but also trying to understand my own role in it. And and I, I part of the way the book is constructed is that I'll take an incident like, you know, my, my first memory of ever meeting her in the classroom where I taught her and how it felt at the time. But then then I'll go back to it and, and, and reassess it in the light of what happened later, which was so unexpected so so strange, but it did compel me to look back at at, at, at all these earlier incidents and, and continually reappraise them. So yes, the book is, is very much about my own involvement in this, but ultimately it did sort of defy comprehension. Yes, I, I had taught her, and but she, you know, she, she, this was some years after I had taught her. She got in touch with me to ask if I would help uh, edit her novel, and I said I couldn't, which was the case. I was busy, but I put her in touch with my agent, an older woman, and she in turn put her in touch with an editor, and she worked with both that agent and the editor and they were both a part of her stalking campaign i mean they, she went after those two one of whom was a sort of elderly woman and in fact the three of us went several times to the police together so it was a rather unusual circumstance it wasn't the kind of classic thing of a uh, simply just a you know a teacher and a student and you you know you have some of her emails that she sent you in the book and she describes herself as a verbal terrorist that's pretty full-on Yes, well, you know, she she had a she had quite a gift for the phrase, and I hadn't come across that phrase, a verbal terrorist, uh, before. But it seemed to be a pretty good description of her. I mean, it was asymmetric warfare in the sense that she either was or considered herself to be someone who had nothing much to lose. I mean, I think she saw, she saw herself as a kind of jihadi. She was of Iranian descent and began identifying very strongly with... One of the very strange things that she did was, was embark on this vitriolically anti-Semitic hate mail. And after a while, she elevated the terms of that so that I wasn't simply being attacked as a Jew, but in her mind, I had become a kind of representative of Israeli politics or something like that. And she, meanwhile, was the representative of all the oppressed Arabs and Palestinians, etc. It was a strange, bizarre scenario to be brought into, but that's what she, in her mind, seemed to believe. So, yes, verbal terrorist. I mean, that's 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 how she saw herself, somebody who was kind of lobbing these incendiary bombs that took the form of words, but were extremely damaging. I mean, if somebody posts the kinds of things that she was posting online about about me uh, or about these these other women you feel very very vulnerable to them and i think she thought that i as a as a as a family man as a published author uh was you know was a was a somebody with very much to lose and and, and i i did feel that that was in fact the case and she hacked into your emails and was able to send out emails on your behalf. And I think you mentioned also that she got on to different Amazon book reviews and so on and wrote all this crazy stuff about you. So it sounds like an unbelievably intense assault on every aspect of your life. Not only you as a writer, but you as a teacher, you as a person with a reputation. Yeah, I mean, she was very resourceful. She didn't actually hack into my email, but she found a way of using my email address and sending emails out as if from me to other people, which was really disturbing and, and, you know, very, very unpleasant. I mean, she was continually finding new ways to attack. Uh, and that was, that, was, that was part of what made it so very difficult because every time I thought I had 
something kind of not under control, but at least I understood what was going on or I knew to look out for online smears or something like that, that she'd come up with some other other way of, of, of doing it. I mean, you know, if I can stand back from it, I had to admire her, her, her ingenuity. But it was uh, something I felt very powerless to, to, to deal with. And the literary community that you're involved with in New York, when, when suspicions are raised, certain things can stick whether you like it or not, whether you're guilty or you're innocent. So how did this affect you as a writer? Besides from your whole creative energies, which I imagine were under tremendous pressure and assault, were there a lot of doubters, a lot of publishers or writers groups that you were familiar with who maybe were second guessing your judgment? Sometimes people can like to believe crazy things and it's very hard to control what other people think of you. Well, you can't control it. And I mean, I think I was lucky in the sense that I mean, the people who knew me, I don't think they had any doubts, but I think I was also lucky in that I wasn't the only person being accused of these things. If, I, if it was just me, uh, you know, a middle-aged man, I think it would have been much more difficult. I think the fact that she was also going after these two older women made it somewhat easier for people to... to dismiss what she was saying. But I mean, for instance, she sent an email, a long email defaming me in various ways to my my boss at one of the colleges where I teach. And, you know, the head of a department in a place like that has to take that kind of email somewhat seriously. So this gave rise to a really excruciating meeting where, I mean, he, he came, knocked on my door one day and said, uh, we've had a very strange email about you. Could we, could we have a discussion? And I had to talk him through this whole bizarre story. Uh, and, you know, he was, he, he, he was very, very very supportive in the, in the end but it was it was a pain it was a very painful experience to have to go through and i mean there weren't many experiences like that but they were unforgettable and the problem is that once somebody is making this kind of assault on you over a long period of time you start to think this is just going to go on forever and there's going to be one experience like this after another it doesn't take very much to make you feel extremely vulnerable i don't think any actual damage was done to me. I mean, I, I, you can never quite know who, uh, who, you know, who reads these, these postings online and what they make of them. I mean, she, she did leave some, some very slanderous things on, you know, after reviews I had written on The Guardian, she would leave things in the comments section. But they were, I mean, to my eye, they all were a little too preposterous for anyone to quite believe literally. But there's that thing that people have, oh, well, it might, you know, she might be a little crazy, but no smoke without fire, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the thing that you can never quite rid yourself of, the sense that people might take your, might believe you essentially, but are always going to have some question in their mind uh, because of because of that, that, that tendency, that, that quite honorable tendency, I think, to keep an open mind. And did it make you second guess how you go about nourishing and empowering your students? Because you had told her she was the star of your class. Well, I didn't tell her. That well, she no, was but the star she, of the she, it, it comes across that you, she saw that she had a talent and you were happy to nourish that talent. So maybe now do you feel your hands have been a little burnt by that? No, I, I mean, if somebody's talented in a class I'm teaching, it's not that I told her or would tell anyone, you know, you are very talented. I just encourage their work. Uh, and, and I respond to it always honestly in the sense that if I'm impressed by something, I don't disguise it. And if I'm, if I'm not, I don't disguise that. And I continue to encourage where anything, you know, good comes my way. But these kinds of experiences definitely take their toll. Um, I don't know that I'm more wary or anything like that, but I suppose I'm I'm more alert to any possible signs of somebody who could kind of 
misinterpret things or or might be disturbed in any way in themselves. Mm-hmm. Although when I think back to when I first met her, I, really that she, she was very or, you know functional person and didn't really give any signs of of being mentally ill or anything like that, which she clearly was. Uh, I mean, I think that mental illness certainly played a part in what happened. And when we become obsessed by anything, whether it's a trauma or whether it's a love affair, whether it's, um, you know, something happening in your job, you know, whatever kind of takes over your mind. When you're under assault like that, how difficult was it for you to not become totally and utterly obsessed by it? so that your every waking thought was Nazarene? Because when we become obsessed with things, we become very vulnerable. Well, I, I didn't succeed. I mean, I became completely obsessed for a period, and uh, I did succumb to... I mean, that's what happens. The original subtitle for this book was, in fact, not on being stalked. I wanted to call it Notes on a Crisis, because it seemed to me that what, this, what, what I had to offer anyone else was not just my weird little story, although I think that has some kind of interest, but, but just the record of going through a crisis, um, the kind of crisis that, that uh, you know, stretches you to the absolute limit of what you can take which is how this was for me. But I felt that it, it, it would have resonance for anyone who'd been through any kind of crisis, an accident, an illness, job thing, or whatever, that had really driven them to the, to the limit. And it did, it did have that effect. I mean, there was, a, there was for a long time, I, I really could not think of anything else at all. I mean, it's no longer the case, but it, but it certainly was. And did you find yourself under the stress taking extraordinary risks in other areas of your life? Because when you're that under pressure, you get distracted and you you can do crazy things because you're not totally present in any situation. It's interesting, yeah. I mean, I I don't think I did anything completely crazy, but I I became short-tempered and pressed, I suppose, for a while and rather preoccupied. I mean, I've when I look back, the thing that I regret the most about the whole thing is that this occupied a big chunk of my, my children's childhood. I mean, my youngest was uh, seven when it began. So for five very formative years of his life, this was going on in, in the background. I mean, it wasn't a big part of everyday life for him, but it, it was there. And I think kids pick up on what's going, going on in, in, their, in their parents' lives. And that's not something, you know, I, w- I would wish on on any child to have that, even even going on in the in the in the dimmest, darkest background of the home. Now, James, there's a very interesting chapter in the book where you meet a detective and you're explaining to the detective what the situation is and how crazy things have got, and it really gives a glimpse into the paranoia that anybody experiences when somebody is stalking them. I might get you to read a few pages. Would that be okay? I'd be happy to. I'd had a meeting with the school's head of security, a former cop, who gave me the number of a police detective in the New York Police Department. I'll call him Detective Bauer, who had had experience dealing with this kind of problem. I phoned the detective at once. He was brisk but courteous and seemed willing to get involved. We arranged to meet the following week at his precinct building. I have vivid memories of this meeting. It took place on a sunny morning in the early spring of 2008. As I walked from the subway, I could feel a kind of thin, improbable elation flickering inside the otherwise black mood engulfing me. I couldn't quite get over the thought that I was on my way to a meeting with an NYPD detective. My cherished principle of internal necessity seemed to have converged miraculously with the principle of action. And here I was, taking matters into my own hands, exercising agency. The station was near my old neighborhood. Patrol cars and traffic scooters crowded the sidewalk outside the precinct building. Inside, a desk sergeant directed me upstairs to the detective's office. I climbed a flight of worn steps, 
A metal door opened onto a large, open, bustling room. Officers, uniformed and plain-clothed, sat at desks that ran the length of it in two rows, interviewing people, talking on the phone, working at laptops. Detective Bauer's desk was at the far end of the room. He stood up as I approached and shook my hand. He wore a brown jacket and tie. I suspect he was about my age, though I perceived, it, though I perceived him as older. He was pinkish and sandy-haired with very light brown eyes, pale-lashed. His face was large, his body heavy-framed. He pointed to a swivel chair by his desk, and I sat down. Just as we started talking, my cell phone rang. It was my daughter, 12 then, and I took the call, excusing myself to the detective, who smiled affably. It wasn't anything important, and I got off quickly, explaining to my daughter that I was in New York, talking to a detective about Nazreen. As I hung up, it occurred to me that the call had very conveniently solved the problem of how to present myself to the detective as a family man with nothing to hide, something that had seemed important to establish. But then almost immediately, I began to wonder if it might have seemed a little too perfectly timed, raising suspicions that I'd set it up in advance, which would of course have suggested the opposite, a furtive, private, calculating type. Another of Nazarene's legacies, this corrosive tendency to question and distrust all impressions of other people, my own of them as well as theirs of me. It really conveys how we, in times of crisis and pressure, how we second guess every aspect of our lives and every decision that we're making because we get so demented. Yeah, demented. I mean, it's amazing how even in these really kind of relatively trivial exchanges, you're sort of expressing this terrible thing in some way that's happening to you. Now, James, at the end of the book, you travel to Jerusalem and you certainly come to grips with the legacy of being a Jew. You know, I'm not religious, but I'm I'm Jewish, uh, but it's not something that I've ever been particularly, well, not not hugely interested in, simply because my, both my parents were secular. We weren't brought up with any religion or any any sort of ceremonies in our in our household so it never meant a great deal to me but when you find yourself at the receiving end of a firestorm of anti-semitism it does focus your mind on on the on the question and it forces you to think about what well what in my case what it what it is to be jewish and um w one of the things that that i realized as i began writing the book was that the story carry a lot of investigations into subjects that had interested me for for a long time subjects like the you know the question of reputation into journeys i'd made um it, it could it could carry portraits of various people that i have been interested family members um tell, telling some family stories and i had some some family stories that connected with the this aspect of of, of my of this particular crisis the anti-semitism uh one in particular concerning my father who who had briefly been at the receiving end of it many, many years earlier. And he, he was an architect, and he had been asked to design a, a synagogue once in, in Jerusalem. The design never was built, but he published it in an article and received some vitriolically anti-Semitic correspondence as a result. And I remembered him showing that to me when I was about 20, and we were both rather shocked, and he put it away, and that was that. But when I, when I found myself getting similar things from Nazarene 30 years later, brought it back and I wanted to go to Jerusalem and uh, I was actually sent there by a magazine to write an article about this synagogue which was finally built by by another architect and but I wanted to be there to place myself right at the sort of epicenter of of Judaism I suppose and think about these emails uh, at the sort of geographic heart of faith that I don't particularly observe but which I am nevertheless intimately connected with and that was a, that was a 
an interesting experience for me. I'd never been there. And it was interesting also because Nazarene had, had as, I, as I said, she had, she'd elevated this simple anti-Semitism into a kind of political dimension. And I wanted to think about where I stood in the political aspect of it too. And how has the whole experience of being so abused in such a disturbing way by a former student, how has that affected you as a father and as a human being? Because I imagine it has left you a very changed person. Well, I think it, it, it definitely had an effect on me. I think like any intense experience it has, it's hard to say exactly what it is. I don't feel like I've been, you know, darkened or, or sort of irreparably scarred by it. But, but it's made me... It's, possible that it has made me wary in some way, but I, I struggle to resist that. Uh, I don't want it to have affected me. I mean, the book is not in any way an attack on Nazreen. The book is, is an attempt to understand her, as I said, also to understand my own my own role in, in what happened. I, I felt that I made some some progress in that way. I think by the end of the book, I got somewhere. And from that point of view, it was it was quite positive. I mean, I think that it's a cliche, but, a, you know, adversity, if you, if you do overcome it, can actually have quite a positive effect. And that was British writer James Lanston talking to me about his new book, Give Me Everything You Have. It's a terrific read. And in case you were wondering what the mysterious, vibey sounding music was in the background, well, it's Icelandic rocker Sigur Ross. I know it's a bit offbeat, but I think... It works. Coming up next, well, we're going to indulge the senses a bit and travel with Oren Pamuk to his beloved Istanbul. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, well, why don't you send me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie or if there's any shows that you've missed and you want to hear them, well, off you go and visit www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books. There's plenty of variety there to keep you going. OK, if the mark of a good writer is to make love to the reader, word by word, page by page, scene by scene, well then Oren Pamuk Istanbul Memories of a City has to be one of the greatest seductions of all time. It's enthralling, delightful, sensual and exotic. And like the best of seductions or love affairs, it lingers and lingers. You smell it. You taste it. Oren Pamuk is a Turkish novelist, screenwriter and academic. In 2006, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He sold over 11 million books, including My Name is Red, The Museum of Innocence and Snow. And while he was born in Istanbul, he now lives in the US, where he's Professor of Comparative Literature and Writing at Columbia University. Oren's a hugely intriguing proposition. And what's really refreshing is he's not afraid to speak up. He's controversial, opinionated, highly emotional, yet gloriously sublime. Well, before I lose the run of myself, I'm going to hand over to screenwriter and novelist Michael O'Loughlin, who chose Istanbul as one of his favourite books of all time. Let's take a listen. The book I've chosen is by Orhan Pamuk. It's called Istanbul, Memories and the City. And Orhan Pamuk, most people know him as the Nobel Prize winning novelist. And this book is a memoir in a way, of his youth growing up in Istanbul. But it's also a book about the city, like a travelogue about Istanbul. And it's also a study of how, an almost an academic study, of how we 
interpret the city that we grow up in through other people's eyes. So it's about how people write about it and how other people have created visual images of it. But the three of them all come together in an incredible way. It's probably his best book, which is a terrible thing to say about a novelist, but it's a book that's in a genre all by itself. And for people who love Istanbul, as I do, it's a very precious book. And it certainly takes you on a terrific journey through the dusty, crowded streets of Istanbul. It's steeped in history as a book, and the city is steeped in history. So can you tell me about that? Well, Istanbul is its a fascinating city in many ways with regard to the way it treats its own history, because it's a city that's 2,000 years old, and it's a city really of ruins. The city is a ruin of itself. It was once one of the greatest cities in the world, and then after the disaster of the 19th century and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, then they lost in the First World War, and the city became a ruin almost. One of the things I love about Istanbul is that when you go there, there's no monuments to itself, but they are coming. That's another another issue. But there are ruins everywhere, and people treat them with a kind of irreverence. They feel this great kind of melancholy about the past, which uh, Pamuk talks about. He calls it huzun, is the Turkish term. And it means a kind of a resignation, a melancholy that's kind of evoked as he walks along the streets, at the poor suburbs and the crumbling houses and the Bosporus in the distance, and it's all dusk the end of the world, the end of an empire, the end of Europe, where Asia begins. And he he communicates that feeling of, uh, not despair, it's a kind of a contented despair, which we almost see as being Eastern, but he doesn't, interestingly enough. He sees it as being something very specific to Istanbul, and that has to do with Istanbul's relation to the West. And the city has a huge personality, and the different places that he visits and the different memories that he evokes in the city. Can you talk to me about his approach to writing about his city? That's what makes the book so interesting to me personally. Like all writers, he spends a lot of his time wandering around the city late at night or early in the morning, just wandering the flaneur, as Walter Benjamin mentioned. The thing about uh, wandering around Istanbul or wandering around Dublin, wandering around any city that you've been born, how do you relate to the city? And he, he mentions Walter Benjamin about how it's very difficult for somebody to write a book, a travelogue about his own city. The reason is that yourself comes between you and the city. You see a different city than the outsider sees. That's what this book is about. It's about the relationship of the self to the place that it grew up in. And that fascinates me uh, for lots of personal reasons. One reason, for example, is that my parents lived in London in the 1950s and they moved back to Dublin shortly before I was born.